All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is May 2nd, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, before we get started on the uh, you know opening spiel of the class, I just want to hope that everybody uh, had a good and productive May Day yesterday. There was a lot of comrades going to different events around the country, and I think that we did a good job. Uh, so tonight's class is going to be on Victory in Europe Day. Uh, which is May 8th, but we're doing it beforehand so that we have the class before the day rather than after. All right, comrade, is there anything that you want to say before we get started with the class? Yes, comrades. So first of all, this video you just saw was at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. You might have heard that name before. It's the most famous theater in uh, the history of the USSR and worldwide known. That's where Lenin uh, made his last speech. That's where Stalin announced the formation of the USSR. And um, that's where they announced Lenin's death as well, okay? And you probably noticed in that video that was Sergei Shoigu, who is the Minister of Defense of Russia, and also Valery Gerasimov, who is the Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces. Okay, now about the Sacred War, very important song. It is the anthem of the Great Patriotic War. And believe it or not, it was composed within 48 hours after the beginning of the invasion by Germany in June 22, 1941. Okay, it was composed by Alexander Alexandrov who was the founder of the Red Army Choir, which is the one you saw on the video, the plane. Okay, he's dead long time, but the choir is still alive, of course. And um, Alexander Alexandrov was a composer of the national anthem of the USSR in 1944. Okay, now uh, I also wanna say something before we start. I wanna show you the flag that you're gonna see all over in the next coming days, you know, and you, you know that flag, it's the victory banner, okay? So this means the 150 rifle division, okay? This means the order of Kutuzov. Kutuzov was a uh, general of the Russian army during Napoleon, he beat Napoleon during the first patriotic war of 1812. Second class, this is Iditra, which is uh, like um, the place where the division was based, okay? This is the 79 Corps. This is the third army. And this is the first Belarusian front, okay? So the Red Army was divided with divisions. Three divisions would form a corps. Three corps would form an army and between three to nine armies would form a front. And uh, Zhukov was the commander of the first Belarusian front that took Berlin. That's all for now, comrades. All right, let's get started with the presentation. All right, like I said, tonight's class is gonna be on Victory in Europe Day, which is uh, May 8th. And what we're gonna be learning in this class is we're gonna be watching a documentary about the events of the Battle of Berlin, something that we've watched before, The Unknown War from the 1970s with Burt Lancaster. It was a, a U.S.-Russia uh, collaboration uh, to go over the Eastern Front of World War II. Then we have The Surrender of Nazi Germany and Victory Against Fascism in Europe, 
that's going to be part of that. And we're going to be watching a few Victory Day parades, both old and recent, that kind of, you know, give ourselves some some pride uh, about the uh, victory over fascism in Europe. And we'll start with the Battle of Berlin. I'll go ahead and just read this slide real quick. This is the prelude. Uh, in the Great Patriotic War, Stalingrad was the turning point against the Axis powers. We had a class a couple months ago of the 80th anniversary of Stalingrad. That's when the, the Nazis were actually reversed for one of the first times in the war, and their retreat westward had started to begin. And between February of 1943, in April of 1945, the Soviet Union continued to repel the Axis powers and take more territory to the West. Very famous battles like the Battle of Kursk and more as they approached uh, Germany. Then in July of 1943, fascist Italy was defeated by the Allied powers and Italian partisans. And Germany was left as the one major Axis power in Europe. So that's important to understand because, you know, when the when the Battle of Berlin comes around, Germany is isolated, at least in the continent of Europe. The next year, the Allies made landing in northern France on D-Day, something we should all be proud of. We were a part of that. And soon France was liberated and Nazi Germany found itself being squeezed to death by the Allies on both sides. You can see maps of the Eastern Front and the Western Front as Germany was, was losing. And with that, we'll go ahead and start listening to the Battle of Berlin from the Unknown War. Lancaster. This is the actual banner which the Russian troops planted on top of the Reichstag after they seized Berlin on April 30th, 1945. Now you see it in the museum of the Soviet armed forces in Moscow. It's a sacred Russian relic, a memory of the last deciding battle of World War II. To the Soviet army, the capture of Berlin was the culmination of their drive to avenge the ravaging of their homeland. As the Soviets were fighting their way into the heart of the city, Hitler mobilized his last reserves. Children, as young as 14 and 15, were called up to fight veteran Red Army soldiers. Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, and the other top leaders of the Third Reich had retreated to a bunker. In that underground shelter, Hitler and Goebbels took their own lives. The war against Hitler was over. The Germans had lost. The last major battle of the unknown war had been fought and peace had come to Europe. Our story, the Battle of Berlin.
across Europe in the spring of 1945, there was an air of expectancy. For a long time now, the question had been not whether Nazi Germany would be crushed, but how soon. The war was in its sixth year. For nearly four of those years, the Soviet army had first suffered, then recovered gloriously, and now was about to exert its full might against the capital of the Thousand-Year Reich. to the Black Sea through the wide plains of Belorussia and the Ukraine, the Red Army left the wreckage of the German war machine. The Soviet High Command had completed its plans for this last battle in November 1944. It was to begin on January 20th, 1945. Berlin was 75 miles away, across the River Oder. With much of their land already devastated, the Germans decided to throw everything they had left into this gigantic confrontation. They succeeded in mustering a million men, 10,000 pieces of artillery, 15,000 tanks, 3,300 aircraft, all protected by mile upon mile of strong fortification. meant to contest the odor and had prepared accordingly by blowing the bridges. Behind the East Bank, the Soviets massed their force. It amounted to 193 divisions, two and a half million men. 42,000 artillery pieces, 6,300 tanks, and 7,500 aircraft. In all, a superiority of between two and four to one in men and equipment. Recognizing the size of the Soviet concentration, Hitler conceived one last desperate idea. If the Red Army could be held in the East, the Americans and British might accept softer terms than unconditional surrender. But Roosevelt and Churchill had promised Stalin that Berlin would be a Soviet target. There would be no deals with the Nazis. Second, Zhukov, commander of the first Belarusian front, came back from the final conference in Moscow.
Count Zhukov the honor of taking the German capital. The operation was complex. In essence, Zhukov's Belarusian armies were to strike directly west to Berlin. Marshal Konyev's first Ukrainian front would head for Leipzig, then north. Rokossovsky's second Belarusian front to the north would force the Oder and advance to the Elbe. All that Nazism had promised was at stake. The glorification of the Aryan virtues, the years of racism and terror, of militarism and the brute excitement of the mob who were coming to an end. Finally, after all the conquests, it was the Gotterdammerung. last act. The Nazis banded them into Volkssturm battalions. The Nazi youth performed its last duties not knowing how close extinction was. They were brave, these children, and dangerous. Hitler emerged from his bunker in the heart of Berlin to hand out decorations, offer encouragement, act the kindly father. It was Adolf Hitler's last public appearance. gentle morning with the spring sun beginning to lift the mist it was april 16th 5 a.m wave of the Soviet assault, they had mounted 143 searchlights to blind the enemy.
Germans' outlying defenses were swiftly crushed, but they'd crammed men into thick defensive positions on the Zillow Heights, about 30 miles from Berlin. There, the battle became most intense. The Germans rushed in anti-aircraft artillery to slow the Soviets. But on April 18th, after a two-day fight, the Red Army overran the heights. All right, our first round of questions and comments. So feel free to raise your hand, anything that you want to say, any questions that you have so far. If you don't know how, the reactions button, uh, you go to raise hand, and that's how you raise your hand on here. On the mobile, it might be three dots, and then you raise it. Okay, I just wanted to say um, also to note, like some of the last people that were there were the ones who were ideologically committed. Um, it would be like the people from Flanders, the people from the like Baltics, people from the Scandinavian countries. They were the last line of defense because they were actually ideologically committed to, you know, preserving the Third Reich. That's all. Yeah, I just want to say, like, it, it's it's really awesome seeing stuff like this where people give uh, the Soviets the credit they deserve for uh, the uh, destruction of fascism in Europe. And I want to go ahead and just say something real quick. You know, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking that this is one of the most important moments in history here. Just the impact that this had on the entire world and, and, and world politics uh, for decades to come. The fact that Nazism, which had terrorized Europe and Africa uh, for years from 1939 up to 1945, was finally uh, meeting a challenge and they were actually being destroyed. And so, I mean, it gets said a lot, but I'll repeat it here. Uh, thank Soviets that we're not speaking German today, comrades. Okay, I'm just curious, who was the commander of the Russian forces that invaded Berlin and took Berlin? And how many were in each brigade total when, they, uh, when the Russians took Berlin? Yeah, can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Sure, okay, I'm just curious, who was the Russian commander that commanded the Russian forces of the Red Army when they marched and took Berlin that ended, uh, I guess, Hitler's reign of power during that time frame? And about how many brigades did it take also to make this offense successful? Okay, so they had three fronts. Uh, from the north, it was the second Belarusian front, commanded by Konstantin Rokossovsky, who was uh, leading the parade, the first victory parade. You're going to see it together with Zhukov. Uh, from there, so going south, right across from Berlin, 37 miles east of Berlin, Zhukov, first Belarusian front, okay? Then south, first Ukrainian front, Ivan Konev, okay? And uh, the one that took Berlin was the first Belarusian front. That's how come on the flag here, it says first Belarusian front, right here, okay? The three soldiers that hoisted the flag on top of the Reichstag, one was a Russian, one was a Ukrainian, and one was a Georgian all from the 1st Belarusian Front, the 3rd Shock Army, 79 Corps, 150th Division, 10,000 men. That's all. Thank you. Yeah, kind of a question I had. So something I've been thinking about the last couple of days, um, I am kind of reminded of something that Angelo says, uh, where he says, one day something may be true and the next day it's not. 
And so, especially when we're thinking historically, you know, we think about 1917, we have Winston Churchill, who I believe had said that he wanted to strangle the Bolshevik baby in its crib. And then you have, you know, in 1945, you have him actually siding with the Soviets to defeat Hitler. So that got me thinking, is it, I guess, looking at it at at that analysis, um, you know, of course, he would still be anti-communist, but is it fair to say that at that point in time that Churchill played a progressive role in the war, you know, kind of, I would almost kind of say similar to like, even today, you know, in the, the current war going on, um, you know, like Putin is playing a progressive role in that war and kind of in shaping the multipolar world. Does that kind of make sense? That was kind of my question is basically was Churchill playing a progressive role at that time? Yeah, I'll go ahead and respond to this. Yeah, I'd say it's it's really fair to say that Churchill uh, and Roosevelt at this time were playing a really progressive role in history. Uh, and, and, you know, the entire allied force of the United Kingdom uh, and the United States. Uh, that's why when I was starting up the class, I said, you know, there was D-Day and we should be proud of that because, you know, Americans were involved in that. And it was it was one of those things where it was just as surprising to see the allies fight, you know, not in the same regions, but in the same way that the Soviets were against Nazi Germany. And I'll also say that Winston Churchill was a lot more progressive in that way than Neville Chamberlain, who famously took a promise, a pinky promise from Hitler that he wouldn't go further into Czechoslovakia once he took the Sudetenland. And he took that home to Britain and said, oh, this is a this is a thing that assures peace in our time. And of course, next thing you know, Hitler took Czechoslovakia. And when Churchill came in, he said, we're going to defend every you know inch of this soil. We're going to we're going to fight them on the beaches. We're going to fight them in the air and all that. So, yeah, I think that at that point in time, Churchill played a really progressive role. And it was only once World War II ended that the United Kingdom and the United States went back to playing a bad role in history. But, you know, what could we expect of them once fascism was stopped at that point in time? Then it came back to imperialism versus socialism. But at the time, it was progressive. Yes, absolutely. You were right about Churchill and Chamberlain. Okay, now keep in mind for this. From 33 to August 39, Stalin tried to reach an alliance of um, mutual assistance with France and the UK. But they were not interested. They were interested to push Hitler to the east. This is what culminated in uh, Munich in 1938, okay? Uh, Stalin kept trying until August 39, and then he made a neutrality pact, non-aggression, neutral, not alliance, with Hitler. And in other words, he, he turned Hitler back towards France and England, okay? And then eventually, uh, naturally, the alliance came back. It wasn't really the UK's willing to do this. You know, their main objective was to use Hitler against the USSR, to have one enemy kill the other enemy, both being enemies, maybe USSR the most enemy. But Stalin, what he did was allowed the alliance to go after uh, 1941. And it came by itself, the alliance. That's all. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, it's this moment in history that really makes me proud to be a communist, you know, like the scourge of fascism was like that close to taking over the world. And the one power that stamped it out was the Soviet Union. And it just really inspires me. And like, when I first learned about this, I was an anarchist. 
And it really made me like stop and reflect, like, you know, where the hell were the anarchists? Like what, what defense did they have against fascism? So it really like made me stop and rethink everything. And that's, it's kind of like what started me on the road to become a communist in the first place. So we should just really be really proud of, you know, the sacrifice and the fact that the Soviet Union was even around to, to make that because if the Soviet Union wasn't a thing, you know, like Tsarist Russia wouldn't have been able to accomplish that. So just something to think about. Thank you, comrade. All right. I see the hands up. We'll make sure to get to you in the next uh, round of questions and comments. The Battle of Berlin. The attack on Berlin was going as planned. Marshal Konyov had developed his southern attack at speed and with success. The Soviet high command now ordered Konyov to swing two tank armies north in the direction of Berlin. Marshal Rokossovsky thrust forward. Marshal Rokossovsky's armies of the second Belarusian front forced the Oder at its branch. They had to cross two stretches of open water and two and a half miles of flooded swamps between them, all under heavy fire. Each wanted the honor of having his troops first in Berlin. Rokossovsky's assault engineers were hard-pressed. By nightfall, Rokossovsky's armor was beginning to cross, to roll towards Stettin and the Elba. The Luftwaffe sent up what strength it had against the dominant Red Air Force. There were Soviet aces present. One of them, Major Kozhadub, added two kills to his total of 60. Sometimes the Red Air Force spotted American bombers on their own missions. German reinforcements were destroyed on their way forward. To the west, Russia's allies were across the Rhine and threatening the Ruhr. The Americans by the Remagen Bridge, the British by amphibious assault.
Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill had agreed that the Western Allies would first take the bomb-ravaged cities of the Ruhr and then meet the Soviets on the Elbe. Southward, American and French spearheads would thrust for Bavaria, Czechoslovakia, and Austria. Berlin, 400,000 civilians built barricades from the ruins of their own homes. Every street, every building was to be defended. Berlin, Zhukov knew, covered 350 square miles, all heavily fortified. At 1.50 p.m. on April 20th, the fourth day of the battle, Zhukov's long-range artillery opened fire on the city. Berlin's outer defenses began to crumble. submissive of people, the citizens took to the streets, driven by starvation. And intoxicated with greed, all discipline, all social order had been wiped away in the hours of fear and destruction. had already suffered tremendous losses. They were worn down and exhausted, no longer able to resist the tremendous thrust of the superior Russian forces. so many of the Nazis' welcomes and farewells to foreign dignitaries was in Soviet hands. The Tempelhof's former commander could not believe he was a prisoner. Behind 
the Soviet bombardment, Zhukov's 3rd Shock Army and his 47th Army erupted into the city streets. Zhukov threw in the 1st and 2nd Guards tank armies after them. Zhukov wanted to take the city by the last day of April. The 1st of May was a national holiday in Russia. And Berlin, Zhukov thought, would make the perfect present. Inside the Hitler bunker, the author of all this misery tried to salvage something out of the disaster. Nazi leaders were still hoping for a negotiated surrender, while above them the aspirations and the monuments of the thousand-year Reich were being consumed by flame. With the stubbornness of the doomed, the Germans fought on the wreckage of their past. Continue in a moment. The Battle of Berlin. At Berlin's center towered the Reichstag. 
set afire in 1933 by Nazi provocateurs so they could use the crime as an excuse for a reign of terror. In 1945, the Reichstag burned again. was an objective. They had been clawing their way toward it for years. Now it was within their grasp. Zhukov gave the order to finish off the enemy at 6.30 that evening. General Weidling, commander of Berlin, gave himself up at 6 o'clock in the morning on May 2nd. That afternoon, Weidling's troops had joined him in captivity. 70,000 of them. The Soviets settled down to their occupation of Berlin. Among them, Lydia Ovcherenko. Who am I? Just an ordinary country girl. I finished high school, then the war began. fought through the whole war, all of the Ukraine, the Crimea, right here to Berlin. of the power of his artillery. Without question, Marshal Georgi Zhukov had established himself as preeminent among the Soviet generals.
who supervised the German surrender. May 8, 1945, the Allies assembled to accept the capitulation. British Air Marshal Tedder, Deputy Commander to General Eisenhower. General Carl Spatz, Commander of the U.S. Strategic Air Force. Former Chief of the German High Command, Field Marshal Keitel. eastern suburbs of Karlshorst. At midnight exactly, the formalities began, led by Zhukov. Assembled here are Marshal of the Soviet Union, Georgi Zhukov, Air Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder, General Carl Spatz, and General Jean de Latre de Tassigny, Commander-in-Chief of the French Army. The representatives of the German High Command have arrived. I thereby declare the proceedings open and order that the representatives of the German High Command be summoned into the room. Keitel entered first. Do the representatives of the German High Command have in their hands the act of unconditional surrender? Have they read the act? I recommend that they sign it.
signature. soldiers left theirs on the Reichstag. I'm from Moscow. The shortest way home is by way of Berlin. It was their only public comment on the unknown war. All right, and with that, we will go to our second round of questions and comments. And uh, just before I call on the hands that we have here, I want to say that it was... Um, very beautiful to me to see the Americans meeting up with the Soviets. They didn't show the soldiers doing that at, I believe, uh, Checkpoint Charlie, to think that there was finally a point where the Allies and the Soviets met after that hard struggle. Um, that's that's an image that should stay in our minds as American communists. So I'll go ahead and call on the hands we have. It's always a very inspiring story. You know, I was just thinking about a story. I don't remember the, the specifics, but I remember reading about like a, a like a, a group of uh, soldiers uh, who defected from the Nazis. I, I can't remember for the life the group. But... All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, really quickly before I go to the next hand, I just want to pin uh, one of the comrades is showing one of their. Um, things from the, the Sacramento Bee, which shows Russian and Yank armies meeting on the river south of the German capital. And so I, I wanted to show that because I think that that's really important. Thank you for that. Yeah, for uh, any uh, World War II history buffs, I've been uh, seeing this narrative um, lately that I wasn't sure of. Uh, People were saying that the reason that uh, D-Day was uh, delayed almost a year since, uh, or more than a year after uh, Stalingrad was so that the Soviet soldiers, the Red Army, would wear itself down before it got to Germany. Is, is this correct? I always thought it was a logistical issue, but I just wanted some clarification. All right. Yes, I was uh, doing a little bit of reading on the uh, uh, total Allied battle plans of uh, World War II a while back. One of the things I was reading in there was describing that the Allied command, specifically the Americans and the British, had full capabilities of, you know, having a naval invasion upon France, you know, at multiple points in time. And uh, the key reason why they didn't is that in describing cables between the uh, Americans and the British, the British put heavy emphasis on liberating or fighting the Germans and the Italians in their colonies first, which is why you saw Operation Northern Torch, the uh, fight through Libya, Algeria, Morocco, and Egypt over, you know, actually going into the heartlands where the uh, beasts lie. And basically, the uh, British, from my understanding, kind of squirreled around and dragged the Americans along with them to try and encircle the uh, uh, central powers and basically, you know, avoid actually having to commit to uh, landing. Uh, the question of whether or not that was definitely done on purpose, 
it's hinted at, and you know, they won't admit this kind of stuff unless you go into the uh, archives, which we probably won't ever see in our lifetimes. It's more or less hinted at that the British purposefully did this to bleed the uh, Soviets dry, but the Americans were more, uh, you know, conducive towards helping Stalin. That's all. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Uh, yeah, just a comment and then like a quick question. I just, the comment is I always just think it's so funny how just because the United States allied with the USSR, things that today now get construed as communist propaganda, they are echoed by the United States government. If you only know where to look, it's just kind of funny. Uh, it gets called propaganda, the US admitted to it. And then a the question was, I can't remember is, was uh, General Zukov a Bolshevik or was he just um, a general in the army? Thank you. Yes, he was definitely a Bolshevik since a uh, young age, I believe, you know. I don't remember how old, but he joined the Communist Party way before World War II. Uh, yeah, I remember reading in volume one of the Communists, they mentioned how the Western allies refused to invade until the Soviet Union dissolved the Comintern. Um, is that true? And if so, like, can I just get some context and some elaboration on that? Yeah, it, there is some truth to it. I mean, uh, one of the reasons that Stalin promoted the dissolution of the Comintern was to force uh, Roosevelt's hand somewhat. There is, there is some truth to it, for sure. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yes, I just wanted to bring out even now uh, a little bit of the post-war uh, uh, information throw that in because they talk about, you know, uh, all the Soviet, you know, the German soldiers that were captured and a lot of high German soldiers. Any high official or any high uh, influential Nazi that was captured by the Soviets, if they were, they were either thrown into prison or, or executed, the United States helped many of them with the OSS, to predecessor to the CIA, and the uh, the Catholic Church helped many Nazis. Many of the Nazis here about that fled to South America. They did that. They did that basically because they wanted them to have a, like a, a, a second front against the Soviet Union. And uh, had one other thing too, had Truman not become president, but had Franklin Delano Roosevelt kept the, the vice president, uh, Wallace, Henry Wallace, it would have been a totally different uh, world Besides being very pro-Soviet, uh, Henry Wallace, in fact, the Secretary of uh, the Treasury was Morgenthau, a man called Morgenthau, who came out with the Morgenthau Plan. And that was basically to level Germany of all factories and basically make Germany nothing but a farming country. No heavy machinery, arms, whatever. It would not have, have an army and no heavy machinery. Of course, all of Roosevelt's people were, were thrown out, and the real right-wing anti-communists were put in by Truman. And of course, the Morgenthau plan was never uh, enacted. And one little thing I just want to mention, I think it's uh, humorous, that the music that ended that uh, segment was from uh, Tchaikovsky. Also reminds me, too, I just wanted to bring up that the war uh, wasn't over uh, when it came to uh, VE Day. That was just victory against fascism in Europe. So the war would continue into August when it came to uh, Japan, which when it gets to that, we'll probably have a class on 
VJ Day, which is victory against fascism in Japan. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to mention was that the end of World War kind of served as a launching pad, both overtly and covertly for the Cold War. The maneuverings that the United States did in Germany and Japan when the war was ending uh, set up the grounds for a Cold War. And when we end up having the VJ Day uh, class later on this year, uh, you'll see what I mean, where literally we go ahead and turn our back on the agreements that we made with the Soviet Union. And instead of having peaceful coexistence, we set it up to be opposed to them, which, like I said earlier, what would you expect from the United States being an imperialist power that just got so much more power with two world wars? But I just wanted to add that in there. I have something else to add. Go ahead. Okay. You know how they raise the flag over the Reichstag on April 30th, right? Which is the day Hitler died. Okay. But it wasn't over yet. The Germans kept fighting for a day and a half. And uh, Berlin surrendered May 2nd, exactly 78 years ago today. Okay. But it wasn't over either because they fought for another six days to liberate Prague. And it was a huge fight, lots of casualties. There was 1 million German soldiers, I mean, German and Slovak and Hungarian soldiers in Prague. And that um, Konev, first Ukrainian front, took Prague. But it was a lot of fighting. That's how come, you know, the official surrender was on uh, May 8th. But remember, though, we celebrate May 9th. Why? Because... It was May 8th late, and it was May 9th for Moscow time. Most important, okay? And by the way, you know the dude that signed for Germany, right? Keitel, the head of the armed forces, right? Guess what? A year later, they hung him in Nuremberg. They killed him. It was painful death when they hanged him. It took him a long-ass time to die. Yeah, I would like to speak on the capture of Berlin, which is such an eventful thing is that there were many soldiers from all nationalities. There was even, by the way, a Polish, there was once a socialist Poland and there was a socialist Poland army, which is separate from this current Poland that exists today. Uh, But the Soviet armies, and there were many nationalities that participated. And unfortunately, when we talk about the wreckers, they stole a book I had sent one of them. Uh, It was actually the person who took the websites was supposed to republish this book and they stole it, but uh, I'll get it back. I already got another book from the author. But he's actually my hero uh, of all the people, not Lenin or Stalin, it's this man. And his name is David Dragunsky. And he was a bricklayer. He was the son of basically farmers. Well, not farmers, but they were tailors in a a poor area of Bryansk region, which is Belarus, Russia, right above where Ukraine is today. And um, he's Jewish. And his whole family died in the Holocaust. But he was a communist. And he was born in 1910. So he was still joined the Soviet party before the war, but he was still kind of young, but he became a, a major general and he went up in the ranks in the communist party and um, in the red army, but he wrote history books. And then um, he was the head of the Soviet anti-Zionist committee. 96. And his commander, when they took Berlin was named Pavel Rybalko, who looks just like Georgi Zukov. He had bad health after the war and all the Soviet commanders, they led by example, like Dragunsky got blown up two times. Like he's, he was damaged for life. And then Rep Alko passed away a couple of years after the war. But they produced books and uh, 
I just wanted to share that there's so much lost history of these just incredible, amazing people. And I hope everyone looks up David Dragunsky. All right. Thank you, comrade. We're going to jump real quick back to the last section and try and get much of it in as we can. So this is the Victory Day parades. So the first one that we're going to watch real quick is the Victory Day parade from 1945 when the fascists were defeated in Europe. Москва, Красная площадь. 24 июня 1945 года здесь, у стен Святого Кремля, встречала страна своих сыновей, вернувшихся с победой, героев беспримерных сражений на всех фронтах Отечественной войны от Баренцева до Черного моря. полки фронтов. Вот те, кто форсировал Днепр и Одер, кто брал снежные карпатские перевалы, кто возвратил свободу Киеву и Минску, кто освободил Севастополь и Одессу, кто сражался на улицах Будапешта, Фёниксберга, Вены, и кто водрузил знамя нашей победы над Берлином. Вести знамен разгромленных гитлеровских армий склонены к ногам победителей. Трибуны заполняются гостями, депутатами Верховного Совета СССР, участниками юбилейных торжеств Академии наук, генералами, героями Советского Союза, мастерами искусства и литературы, стахановцами московских фабрик и заводов. Девять часов пятьдесят пять минут утра. Трибуне Мавзолея товарищ Сталин, руководители партии и правительства Советского Союза. Маршал Советского Союза Рокоссовской. Парад принимает маршал Советского Союза Жуков.
берегу на Мавзолея маршал Советского Союза Жуков обратился с речью к войскам Красной Армии, к рабочим, колхозникам, интеллигенции, ко всем трудящимся Советского Союза. «Отечественная война завершена», — сказал маршал Жуков. «От фашистской Германии одержана победа, какой еще не знала история. Мы победили потому, что нас вел к победе наш великий вождь и гениальный полководец, маршал Советского Союза Сталин». So we can just take our last round of questions and comments before we wrap up for tonight. And I'll make sure to share that video on our PSMLS social media, uh, just in case anybody still wants to check it out. I was uh, mostly relating to uh, last time you were mentioning uh, Japan and the uh, continued fight against fascism. It was mostly relating to the absolute, uh, what's the word? brilliant design that was done by the Soviets to, you know, modernize their logistic system and their sheer industrial capacity to accomplish what I don't think any other nation can do right now. And that is that after the uh, March through Berlin happened, after uh, Zhukov's men uh, seized the capital, did all of the signatures and everything and secured victory, they abandoned all of their equipment, their tanks, everything, got on the trains and rode all the way to Vladivostok to arrive to brand new tanks, brand new equipment, all fresh off the lines of, of the uh, factories in uh, Siberia. And they basically took place and positioned themselves to invade and liberate Manchuria with brand new equipment that was manufactured and prepared for them in the time it took for them to go from Berlin to all the way to the other side of the world. And if you can just imagine how large Russia is, like you can stare at a map and it doesn't really give you a sense of scale, but just the amount of time it takes to do all of that and have everything ready for basically a perfect liberation, that is something that you cannot see today. The Soviets of that were just absolute masters of their craft and absolute brilliant scientists, engineers, so on and so forth. Thanks. All right. Thank you, comrade. What was the name of that guy mentioned, uh, the Polish general? I didn't catch his name that uh, he admired. So he's Jewish. And this guy lived to into the 90s. He lived the whole 20th century. Angelo met him in New York. Oh. He was the head of the Soviet Anti-Zionist Committee. And he's Jewish. His name is David. And the last name is Dragunsky. So it's like the word dragon, but with a U. D-R-A-G-U-N-S-K-Y. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Angelo met him like in the 70s or something, in the 80s. He came to the U.S. All right. Thank you, comrades. Victory in Europe Day would never have happened without the second and third uh, five-year plans in the Soviet Union. 
I bring this up because a couple weeks ago we had our class on ultra leftism. Uh, had they not had the great purge in the Soviet Union and the Communist Party, the Trotskyites would have continued to destroy factories that were being built to rapidly industrialize the Soviet Union. Uh, so I just wanted to add that in. Um, Without that, the party could have split up and would have left them vulnerable to the Nazis. Thank you, comrade. And that reminds me to just put in here that was it anarchists that defeated the fascist back in the 1940s? No, it was the communists. It was the Soviets. We look at certain things nowadays like the, you know, so-called Antifa, you know, up in Portland or in other areas. Uh, they're not defeating the fascists. The fascists are still out and about. So we uh, need to be proud of ourselves for that kind of um, uh, victory. Anyways, I'll go ahead and take Comrade General Secretary's hand, and then we'll start our wrap-up. Yeah. Uh, I met General David Dragunsky in New York. He was a guest speaker at the annual luncheon of Jewish Affairs magazine. What our party is going to try to bring back again magazines to the Jewish community that deals with uh, non-Zionist, secular, socialist orientation. But what I wanted to tell everybody, how could it be that all these different groups in Russia work together? When I lived there, intermarriage was big between Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Russians. Very big common, very common. How come they could live peacefully for 80 years? And the today, the Ukrainians and the Russians do not get along. The enemy is not the Ukrainians. The enemy is not the Russian. What has changed? The economic system in both areas has changed. It is now capitalism. And it is not a coincidence that with capitalism, which breeds competition, economic competition, and then it breeds nationalism. It's not a coincidence that they're having this problem. And it got worse in 2014. The mass media in this country, watch them. They don't mention any of this, what I just said. None of it is mentioned. They give you the belief that the Russians and Ukrainians never got along. That's not true. We know that. And the Ukrainians know that. What's going on in Ukraine now is not Russia versus the Ukraine. It's a civil war in the Ukraine between those who remember the Soviet system that they lived under for their whole lives and the senior citizens and those who are new, who were brought up under Stefan Bandera's ideology. They are fascists and the media doesn't tell us that. So as you're looking at this movie, Remember, it was a socialist Russia, a socialist Ukraine, a socialist Belarusia that won that war. Very interesting. I think people got to remember that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm actually so excited because I lost that book and I was just searching now. You know what? I found it. I found it scanned as a PDF, not in English, but in Spanish. Someone in Argentina, there must be a professor, scanned it. But that's great because we can translate it from Spanish to English and then we'll already have the Spanish translation finished. It's awesome. So I found the book. It's great. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I hope you learned something. 
That's the most important thing about a school, that you learn something you didn't know before. Because let's be honest, knowledge is a power. It really is power. Uh, and it's important that we, we are able to rat off facts and figures when we have discussions with other people. Thank you very much. Good night.
you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.